0: A quick warning. This episode has language that listeners may find offensive. In 1980, Lillian McEwen had an important job on Capitol Hill. She worked for Joe Biden on the Senate Judiciary Committee. But that November, the Democrats got trounced at the ballot box. And McEwen was worried about her future.
1: When you lose control of the Senate, you lose one-third of your budget. So that means one-third of the staff had to be fired. So there was panic in the streets.
0: (laughs) One day, in the waning hours of Democratic Party rule, McEwen and her colleagues came up with a plan.
1: What we were going to do was we were going to make friends with the Republicans uh, so that if we lost our jobs, (laughs) then we'd work for a Republican because the Republicans would have the money.
0: In the middle of that conversation, she caught a glimpse of someone in the hallway, Clarence Thomas, an aide to Missouri Senator John Danforth.
1: And I said, there's one now. (laughs) So I I literally jumped up out of the seat and everybody that I left behind was laughing as I ran down the hall after him.
0: McEwen had met Thomas before at get-togethers of black congressional staffers, but they weren't exactly friends.
1: I caught up to him, and I said, you want to go out for coffee? It's the first thing I could think of. Of course, I don't even drink coffee. And he was completely and absolutely bewildered because I don't think I'd ever said a word to him before.
0: Thomas agreed to meet up, and after that first get-together, the two of them started a routine. Thomas would go to McEwen's apartment after work and throw back whatever she was pouring. And he would just drink all
1: the liquor that I had, and then he would just kind of like stumble out and go home. That was our friendship.
0: In those days, Thomas was looking a little rough. He wasn't going to the barber regularly, and his clothes were old and worn.
1: His shirt was ragged. I mean, like, literally. The threads were coming off of his collar.
0: McEwen says she didn't judge Thomas for his drinking or for his raggedy looks. When they started spending time together, they were kind of in the same place. She'd recently split with her husband, and his marriage with Kathy Ambush was on the rocks.
1: I would say he was filled with self-pity. I guess, more than anything else, I felt sorry for him.
0: After Thomas separated from his wife, he slept on the floor of a friend's apartment. Every morning, he'd play The Greatest Love of All by George Benson. Thomas has said that he found that refrain about learning to love yourself particularly powerful since he didn't even like himself. But in the early 80s, he was learning to love someone else.
1: Because we could talk to each other, because we could make sense of what the other person said, that drew him and me very close.
0: At what point did you realize... I think this guy might like me.
1: I didn't realize it at all until one evening I was sitting on the sofa. I can't remember what I was doing. And he came up behind me uh, while I was sitting there. He leaned over and he kissed me on the lips. I was completely shocked, but that's how I discovered that we were definitely compatible.
0: This is Slow Burn. I'm your host, Joel Anderson. In his memoir, Clarence Thomas writes about his professional and personal relationships in extraordinary detail. But there's one person he never mentions by name. His ex-girlfriend, Lilia McEwen. To understand who Thomas is today, you need to know what McEwen saw and heard in the 1980s. You also need to hear how he treated women that he worked with. Because at the moment of Thomas's greatest triumph... These critical years would come roaring back and threaten to cost him everything.
2: If you really want an idea of how I treated women, I have hundreds of women who worked with me. You can call them. Dozens who worked closely with me on my personal staff. You can call them. You can bring them up, see what they say.
0: This is episode three. I'm their guy.
3: Let me talk to you about, since you've been in the workforce about 20 years since leaving law school, have you ever witnessed sexual harassment firsthand?
2: Senator, I have witnessed incidents uh, that I would consider on... sexual harassment, and inappropriate conduct. And uh, as chairman of EEOC, I was adamant that this conduct would not uh, take place. And anyone who's worked with me understands that. I was adamant that it would not take
0: place. After Lillian McEwen and Clarence Thomas shared their first kiss, they got serious.
1: He became a part of my life. Uh, So I introduced him to my friends, I introduced him to my family. He laughed at their jokes and he danced with them. He shared meals with them. He was very comfortable around them.
0: I just have to ask this question for my own edification. Could, could Clarence dance?
1: He did a dance that consists of a shuffle and then you dip down and, and put your handkerchief on the floor and then pick it up again. It's a shuffle and a dip and a shuffle and a dip. That was his way of dancing.
0: McEwen and Thomas vacationed together and went to restaurants and to theater. They also did more intimate things, like browsing together at an adult video store, a place where Thomas was apparently a regular customer. I'm sure Clarence was very upset when the man behind the counter said,
1: we just got something in that you would like.
0: McEwen says the connection they shared was profound, that they bonded over where they'd come from and what they'd lived through.
1: We had equally miserable childhoods. We both had cold people who raised us, uh, and we were both the product of Catholic schools.
0: Thomas talked incessantly about the hardships he'd faced, from his taskmaster of a grandfather to the peers who had once called him ABC, America's Blackest Child.
1: By the time he had graduated from law school and was working on the Hill, that had morphed into anger and resentment. He was a very angry man.
0: Thomas carried that resentment with him to his next job. In March 1981, he was offered a position as Assistant Secretary for Civil Rights in Ronald Reagan's Department of Education. He was offended. It was a role where he had no expertise, He knew the White House only wanted him because he was Black. Thomas took the job anyway, but it didn't take long for him to start speaking out against his new bosses. You know, what's interesting, frankly, is how critical he was of the Reagan administration, not just in private, but publicly. That's Corey Robin. He's the author of The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. Especially in the first term, you know, he would talk about uh, the racism of the Reagan administration Not long after Thomas started at the Department of Education, an evangelical school in South Carolina instigated a national controversy. Bob Jones University argued that it should be exempt from taxes, even though it banned interracial dating. The Reagan White House agreed.
3: The president insists it was his idea to overturn 12 years of IRS policy denying tax-exempt status to private schools that discriminate against blacks. Thomas was
0: infuriated In his memoir, he says he told a white colleague that the administration had destroyed its credibility on race. He also claimed that he was close to resigning. But Thomas didn't quit. He later said in an interview, yes, there are a lot of racists in the administration. I don't care. I prefer dealing with an out-and-out racist anyway to one who is racist behind your back.
4: What Thomas says is, at least they never smile at me. You know, they don't put on that show or that act of seeming friendliness. I know exactly what I'm getting. In
0: 1982, the White House offered Thomas a big promotion, the chance to run his own federal agency. The trouble was, that agency was the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, this was exactly the kind of role Clarence Thomas didn't want, a position focused on race and discrimination.
1: He didn't want to be there. He was resentful that he had not been offered something that uh, a white person would want.
0: Thomas was in a bind. He wanted to keep rising in the administration, but he didn't want to rise this way.
1: He didn't want anyone to think that he had gotten a job because he was black. Of course, every job he had ever gotten was because he was black. That was his whole life was uh, being the exceptional guy.
0: Thomas had felt the sting of being seen as an affirmative action case, and the EEOC was literally in the business of affirmative action. The agency tried to force private companies to diversify with the help of court-mandated quotas, and Thomas hated quotas. I think that quotas are cop-out. I think that uh, it's an easy way out for individuals
2: who have not done what's right.
0: Once again, Thomas chose his career over his ideals. Although he didn't believe in the EEOC's mission, he wasn't going to turn down such a big job. He was now in charge of 48 local offices and 3,100 employees. Among them were a handful that came with him from the Department of Education, including a young lawyer named Anita Hill. At the EEOC, Thomas proved to be a pretty effective
4: administrator. He really centralizes operations. He introduces computers. You know, he modernizes it and all the rest of it. Thomas also
0: changed the agency's mission to one that fit his worldview. Traditionally, the EEOC had filed big discrimination lawsuits against employers. Thomas mostly shut that down. The EEOC also stopped demanding that companies hire certain percentages of women or minorities by specific dates. Thomas said those requirements could create a kind of reverse discrimination. The
2: problem really is what happens
0: to an individual who is adversely affected by the
2: imposition of an affirmative action plan or a quota plan. That is an issue that the courts have ducked this term, but I think that they will eventually have to deal with it.
0: Thomas had started out as an internal critic of the administration's policies on race. But at the EEOC, Thomas didn't challenge Reagan in any significant way. He made changes that white conservatives loved and that black civil rights leaders hated. In 1985, the executive director of the NAACP said that Clarence Thomas was partially responsible for moving the country backwards. Lillian McEwen says those kinds of attacks struck a nerve with Thomas.
1: He had a resentment and a hatred of other Black people that was obvious.
0: McEwen says that hatred and resentment crystallized in a single word.
1: Whenever anybody who was Black angered him or disagreed with him or uh, made fun of him, he would always say, flies, under his breath. The flies came from a mantra that he used to say, to himself all the time. Niggers and flies, niggers and flies I I both despise, but the more I see of niggers, the more I like flies.
0: McEwen says Thomas heard that old racist chant from his grandfather, Myers Anderson, the man who'd helped lift him out of poverty and who'd also tormented him for most of his life. By the early 80s, the two men weren't talking much and they would never get the chance for a full reconciliation. Thomas's grandmother and grandfather both died in 1983. Myers-Anderson, who passed away from complications of a stroke, was 75 years old.
1: When his grandfather died, I saw him break down to the point where he couldn't even walk. He was sobbing. And, and depressed to the point where he was unconsolable.
0: In his memoir, Thomas writes that, in every way that counts, I am my grandfather's son. What I am is what he made me. But McEwen doesn't think that's quite right.
1: His grandfather had a different kind of uh, metamorphosis because his grandfather was so close to slavery as an institution in this country. If you didn't, cross the street when a white person came toward you, you might be killed. That was life and death for those people. The Catholic Church taught the grandfather how to discipline his own self and how to survive in a community that despised him. But Clarence took all of the wrong lessons from the grandfather He took the lesson of do whatever it is that you need to do in order to succeed regardless of what your heart tells you and just put your nose to the grindstone and force yourself to do these things even though you hate it and then you will get what you want.
0: Let's take a quick break. Clarence Thomas may have had reservations about his role in the Reagan administration, but he didn't mind the perks his position afforded him. His salary as chairman of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission helped him buy a Camaro IROC Z sports car. He also ditched his raggedy clothes. Now he wore elegant but conservative business suits.
3: Everybody wants to be a winner. To be a winner takes cooperation and management and solid teamwork. I know. I'm Doug Cosby,
0: tight end of the Dallas Cowboys. Thomas even got to film a public service announcement with his favorite NFL team.
2: Equal employment opportunity is the law, and it will be enforced. But teamwork also pays off. For further information, call the U.S. Equal Employment
4: Opportunity Commission. That was the wonderful thing about being at the EOC. We were able to remove barriers that, that was not leveling the playing field for everyday Americans. That's
0: Armstrong Williams, Thomas's friend and former assistant. Everybody, this check. Like James Brown said, get on my way, open the door, and I'll go in and fend for myself. I don't need anything special. Thomas was a constant presence at the EEOC building, walking the halls with a Diet Coke can in his hand.
4: I mean, we would be in the office six in the morning, first arrived, last to leave. He's the hardest working person to this day that I know.
5: Basically, Clarence didn't do a lot of work. He socialized a lot with the staff, and he would socialize with the commissioners.
0: Sikari Hartnett started working at the EEOC in 1985 when she was 35 years old.
5: We would, you know, befriend certain women. And of course, as Black women, we don't always have access to that kind of power.
0: Thomas hired Hartnett as a special assistant, but it didn't take long for her to figure out that he didn't just value her for her intellect.
5: He wanted me to go to coffee, to go in the morning with him, to be like his sidekick. My role was just basically to accompany him wherever he wanted to go or whatever he wanted to do. So, you know, after a while, it got to be cumbersome. And I started hiding out in different offices at the commission to avoid hanging out with him.
0: When Thomas invited Hardnett for a chat, it seemed that no topic was out of bounds.
5: He would talk about just nonsensical things like some people reminded him of a wet dishcloth and how slimy it was and just, you know, weird things. Sometimes he would talk about his girlfriends.
0: Did Lillian McEwen ever come
5: up? Yeah, he talked about Lillian all the time. He said at one point he wanted to have enough money to buy her a mink coat.
0: Thomas's constant talk about relationships made her uncomfortable, Over time, she came to realize there was a pattern to the EEOC chairman's treatment of Black women on his staff.
5: When the chairman would say anything interesting or special to you, they would take that as either flattering or, you know, maybe I'll get a promotion. So that's what I saw happening.
0: Hardnett says young Black women in the office felt like they were being inspected and auditioned.
5: He would interview them, and then when he decided He wasn't interested in them anymore. He was sort of dropped them like a hot potato.
0: That happened to Hartnett, too. She thinks it all started when word got back to Thomas that she called him a Bama. That's D.C. slang for someone who's kind of a bumpkin.
5: (laughs) Because he drove a muscle car. And uh, I didn't mean any harm, but, you know, at that time, I just wasn't sophisticated enough to know that I shouldn't say things like that. And I think that it was like the beginning of the demise of our relationship.
0: In the beginning, Thomas had confided in her and called her at all hours. Now he ignored her in the hallway. Hartnett felt like an outcast. She tried to get reassigned, but that request got denied. In 1986, she quit, and Hardnett wasn't the only one who left the agency on bad terms.
6: Angela Wright was another employee of Clarence Thomas's at the EEOC.
0: That's Jill Abramson. She and a fellow journalist, Jane Mayer, interviewed Angela Wright for their book, Strange Justice.
6: She felt Clarence Thomas had behaved completely inappropriately
0: Wright joined the EEOC in March 1984 as its director of public affairs. She says Thomas consistently pressured her to date him, telling her matter-of-factly, you know we're going to be going out eventually. Wright declined our interview request, but she spoke to PBS's Frontline in 2020.
5: Not only does he make inappropriate comments to women, he made comments about people that the EEOC was sworn to protect.
0: There was one comment in particular that really gave Wright the creeps.
6: He had mentioned to her that he found the hair on her legs sexy.
0: One night, Thomas dropped by her apartment unannounced and stayed for hours. Wright was so uncomfortable with his request for one-on-one meetings that she started asking a coworker to stick around each day until Thomas left the office. Then, as he had with other female subordinates, Thomas abruptly lost interest, Wright says that one morning she found a short note taped to her chair. After barely a year on the job, she was being dismissed. Thomas has said that Wright got fired for using an anti-gay slur at work. Wright says that's completely untrue, and nothing like that ever happened. She remembers Thomas saying that he was dissatisfied with her performance, and that he was also upset because she hadn't waited for him outside of his office after work. As head of the EEOC, Thomas was the second-highest-ranking Black official in the Reagan administration. And to some people, it seemed possible he'd rise even higher. I always said that Thomas, when he was at EEOC, he would be on the Supreme Court someday. He thought it was a joke. Armstrong Williams again. He thought it was the farthest thing
4: from possibility. He never thought that was possible.
0: That's one version. But an attorney who worked with Thomas at the EEOC says it was on his mind for a very long time. That co-worker said, the first day I met him in 1981, he told me he was going to be on the Supreme Court. To get there, Thomas would have to raise his profile. As EEOC chairman, he started giving speeches all around the country, hoping to build his reputation as one of America's most prominent black conservatives. It's almost like you are naive if you say you're idealistic and you believe in something.
2: I've been laughed at for saying I believe in God. Laughed at, I thought I'd never see the day when that would happen. I think the process can wear you down, and it can make you better. I think you still got to hang in there. We have the freest nation on earth, and if we want to keep it that way, we better
0: participate, and we better participate soon. Lillian McEwen says that as Thomas made the rounds, one particular group really took notice. The white
1: conservatives, (laughs) they were amazing. They would come up to him and literally pat him on his back and tell him, we're so proud of you, man. We're really proud of you. Thank you so much.
0: Did he like that?
1: Oh, God, yes. Oh, yes. He would say, they like me. And he would say, I'm their guy. He never thought that they were insulting him by telling him that they were proud of him. Or if he did, he hid it very well. He gritted his teeth, maybe. But that was the whole purpose.
0: McEwan often felt that Thomas was going along to get along.
1: I think of Clarence as as wearing a mask, and I think of him like that because I've had to do it so many times myself, and I recognize it in other
0: human beings. She says that conformity would emerge in all kinds of ways, even in his famous laugh.
1: That's one of the things about Clarence that I hated the most, because for me, it was very forced, and it was very fake. And it's also extremely loud. I mean, very, very loud. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like this. (laughs) Something
0: like that. I can see why you hated it. Um, you, You thought it was a performance. Yes,
1: always. Always. Clarence has the ability to metamorphosize into many different masks. This is an ability that... You cultivate from a very young age, from childhood,
0: in order to succeed or survive. The journalist Juan Williams says that he got to see behind that mask at least once. It was after the swearing-in ceremony for Thomas's second term as EEOC chairman. Several high-ranking members of the Reagan administration were there, including William Bradford Reynolds, a white official from the Department of Justice.
4: William Bradford Reynolds stands up and says you know, quite openly to everyone that Clarence Thomas is an example of affirmative action. His exact words? Clarence Thomas is the epitome of the right kind of affirmative action working the right way. You know, he's the kind of Black person that you want in America. And Thomas just seethes over this comment because I can tell you, he has never seen himself as an example of affirmative action. He's seen himself as having earned and worked hard to earn uh, advancement. So what the hell is this about that's all of a sudden you see me primarily as a black guy and not only a black person, but a black person who's in your company because of affirmative action. When you asked him about it, do you remember what he said? He was complaining to me like, you know, this shit never stops with white people. Sometimes you hear something like that from him, it would be about liberals or, you know, the far left or something. But here, it was about someone on the far right, someone that's supposed to be, you know, his ally.
0: Lillian McEwen felt that the mask that Thomas had to wear made him deeply unhappy. One night, sometime around 1986, she invited him to dinner at a Greek restaurant near Capitol Hill. After the server brought their meal, She told him their relationship was over. I said, I'm leaving you.
1: This is it. You have become intolerable to everyone that I know. And it's time for me to go.
0: Did he put up a fight?
1: No, he didn't. He accepted it. He knew that he had actually become a different person. I'm pretty sure it was a person that he didn't like. There's a price that you have to pay, sometimes, to get what you want. The elimination of his personhood is how I view it, and a substitution of a completely manufactured, ambitious, power-hungry, vengeful
0: person. We wanted to ask Clarence Thomas about all this, but he declined to speak with us. After she worked for Joe Biden, Lillian McEwen went on to become an administrative law judge at the Securities and Exchange Commission. She retired in 2007. Four years later, she published a tell-all memoir called D.C. Unmasked and Undressed. You know, you wrote your memoir. um, You've told these stories about him. What might you say to people who just say, this is a vengeful ex-girlfriend who's out to ruin or tarnish Clarence's reputation.
1: Um, I would say, first of all, I'm not vengeful. Uh, Clarence never hurt me. He never did anything to harm me. He probably still loves me. And uh, I left him. He didn't leave me. And I don't think he cares what anybody thinks about his reputation or... What he has done, he can't really be ruined, is what I'm trying to say. He can be offended, but ruined, no. He's gotten what he wants.
0: Around the time McEwen and Thomas were growing apart, he began making some drastic changes. He gave up alcohol and went for runs every morning, sometimes as long as 10 miles. On the way to the office, he'd have his driver swing by a Catholic church so he could pray. One of the most important moments of his life came in April 1986, when he went to a conference on affirmative action. While he was there, he got to talking with a spokeswoman for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Her name was Virginia Lamp. Thomas didn't see anything happening with Lamp. She was in a relationship, and she was white. But they ended up getting lunch and later went to see the movie Short Circuit, a comedy about a robot that comes to life after getting struck by lightning. It's really true.
4: Spontaneous emotional response. I am alive. Yes? Yeah, yes. Yes. yes, yes
0: alive. I'm alive. Yeah. During the movie, Thomas realized that lamp was tickled by his crazy laugh. Later they went for a long walk around Baltimore's Inner Harbor and started holding hands. Lamp came from a Republican family in Nebraska, and she shared Thomas's political views. In college, Thomas had urged his black friends not to date white women, but now, 20 years later, he changed his mind. In his autobiography, he wrote that, I knew this was no fetish-laden intrigue with a woman of another race, but a gift from God. In 1987, Clarence Thomas got married for a second time, and Virginia Lamp became Jenny Thomas. Thomas embraced his new domestic life, and one of his old friends noticed that he was a different guy.
3: The change came when I went to visit him on the hill. You know, we were all hanging out together. That's Eddie Jenkins, Thomas' friend from Holy
0: Cross. The two men reconnected in the 1980s after Jenkins came to D.C. to work as an attorney for the Department of Labor.
3: And we would talk, and we would then hang out. But Clarence, very often we would have parties He wouldn't go inside. He would stand outside with a cigar, talking. Thomas wanted to debate
0: politics, just like they used to in the Black Student Union at Holy Cross. But this wasn't the 1960s. They weren't talking about the Vietnam War or the Black Panthers.
3: Now, Thomas had a new set of talking points. And he said, we need to understand that this whole direction that we're going in is wrong. This whole thing about affirmative action, these handouts, is making us a dependent and inferior race. And he go on and on about this, man, and we be standing outside, all these people partying inside, hey, man, I can't handle so much of this, man. I'm going back inside.
0: Eddie Jenkins may not have wanted to hear what his old friend had to say, but other people were listening.
7: We can now speak the most majestic words of democracy, has to offer, the people have spoken, and with
0: George H.W. Bush won the presidency in November 1988, and Thomas was angling hard for a federal judgeship. He met with conservative power brokers and had his allies talk him up to the White House Counsel's Office. The campaign worked. In the summer of 1989, Thomas got nominated to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. This was no ordinary appointment. The D.C. Circuit was the main
3: springboard to the Supreme Court. And Clarence Thomas knew it. Clarence confided to me and others that he was their guy. He was Bush's guy. I didn't know what that meant. But I, I know that the way he was moving, it meant that he was up for something big. We'll be back in
0: a minute. As of 1991, there had been exactly one black person nominated to the Supreme Court.
7: Historians will note this hour at the White House. In a Rose Garden ceremony, a 58-year-old great-grandson of a slave is nominated by President Johnson to be a Supreme Court Justice. He is Solicitor General Thurgood Marshall, acknowledged the best-known Negro lawyer of the
0: century. Marshall was a civil rights champion who'd won a landmark victory in Brown v. Board of Education.
7: The United States is the melting pot of the world. The Negro
0: either didn't get in the pot or he didn't get melted down. (laughs) But in the 1967 press conference announcing Marshall's nomination, Lyndon Johnson didn't mention his race at all. I believe it's the right thing to do, the right time to do it, the right man in the right place. Not everyone agreed that Marshall was the right man, One of America's best-known columnists wrote that his only qualification was that he was a Negro. But after a long and bruising confirmation process, he finally got the votes he needed.
3: Thurgood Marshall, the first Negro to serve on the United States Supreme Court, puts on his robes with the assistance of his wife.
0: On the court, Justice Marshall became a voice of dissent, arguing that the nation needed to do more to address the legacy of racial discrimination. As the decades rolled by, he only became more outspoken.
7: Everybody quotes Martin Luther King saying, "I got we're free again.
0: we not free. We're nowhere near free. Marshall hated the idea of a Republican president replacing him. He said that he wouldn't do the job of dog catcher for Ronald Reagan and that George H.W. Bush was dead to him. But by 1991, his health was failing. That summer, He decided it was time for him to go.
5: After 24 years on the bench and just days short of his 83rd birthday, Thurgood Marshall, the only African American ever to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court, is stepping down. I look forward to the next thing. I never look back.
0: Bush wanted a minority judge to fill Marshall's seat. At this point, Clarence Thomas had been on the D.C. Circuit for just over a year and hadn't assembled much of a record. But Thomas was one of the few federal judges who was both black and conservative. And in the end, those were the credentials that mattered.
7: Good evening, President Bush made public today the man he wants to be the next Supreme Court justice. His name is Clarence Thomas. The president had gone with the man aides believe he wanted to appoint from the start.
0: President Bush made it official at a press conference at his summer home in Kennebunkport, Maine.
3: So Clarence Thomas seasoned now by more experience on the bench Fits my description of the best man at the right time. Cameras
0: flashed as Thomas stood just behind Bush's right shoulder. He looked nervous as he stepped to the podium.
2: Thank you, Mr. President. As a child, I could not dare dream that I would ever see the Supreme Court, not to mention be nominated to it. I thank all of those who have helped me along the way, especially my grandparents who are Especially my grandparents, my mother, and the nuns, all of whom were adamant that I grow up to make something of myself.
0: When Thomas finished his remarks, a reporter asked the question that he'd been hearing for most of his life.
3: Judge, a question for you. What do you say to critics who say the only reason you're being picked is because you're black?
0: I think a lot worse
2: things have been said. Uh, I disagree with that, but I'll have to live with it.
0: The Bush White House needed someone to usher Thomas through the confirmation process.
2: Dan
7: Quayle called me up and said, how strongly would you support him? And I said, very strongly. I'm Just go all the way for him.
0: That's Thomas's mentor, Missouri Senator John Danforth.
7: I knew that Supreme Court confirmations could be very difficult. This was in the post-Bork
0: world. That would be Robert Bork, a D.C. Circuit judge who was nominated to the Supreme Court by Ronald Reagan in 1987. He opposed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and believed Roe v. Wade was unconstitutional. Democrats and liberal groups fought hard to stop Bork from getting confirmed. Senator Ted Kennedy led the charge.
7: Robert Bork's America is a land in which women would be forced into back alley abortions. Blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters. Rogue police could break down citizens' doors in midnight raids. And school children could not be taught about evolution.
0: The attacks against Bork worked. The Senate voted him down 58 to 42. If the Democrats stuck together, they could bounce Clarence Thomas too. After losing their majority during the Reagan years, they now had 57 seats in the Senate. A strict party-line vote wouldn't be a contest. And so was I worried about it? Yeah. But in 1991, the political calculus wasn't that simple. Thomas initially had broad public approval, and not just from white conservatives.
7: When Judge Thomas was nominated to succeed Justice Thurgood Marshall,
0: Black America was overjoyed. That's Representative John Conyers, one of the co-founders of the Congressional Black Caucus. Conyers, who didn't support Thomas personally, argued that Black folks' enthusiasm was more about racial solidarity than about the nominee himself.
7: We were so happy to have a Black named that that led to uh, uh, immediate support, regardless of the fact that we knew him or not.
0: When I was growing up, I understood what racial solidarity was before I ever heard that phrase. I wasn't a Lakers fan, but I rooted for Magic Johnson over Larry Bird. I was proud that my hometown Houston had a black chief of police and a black NFL quarterback. And yeah, when I was 13, I thought it sounded good that a black guy named Clarence Thomas was going to follow Thurgood Marshall on the Supreme Court. And I remember being confused when the adults around me said that it was a lot more complicated than that. In 1991, those kinds of conversations were happening all over Black America, in households like mine and inside the country's leading civil rights groups.
7: Thomas will be controversial, especially to civil rights activists who find his views particularly distasteful in a fellow Black. But his race could make it awkward for them to oppose him.
8: They didn't say it, but in so many words, they will say, oh, you all gotta support him. You must support him. This is a Black
0: man. That's Hazel Dukes. Today, she's 91 years old and leads the NAACP's New York State Conference. Back in 1991, she was the organization's national president. I'm my father's child.
8: I speak my mind. If I think something is wrong and
0: it need to be corrected, I speak about it. The NAACP had spoken out against Thomas when he ran the EEOC. Now, they had to figure out what to do about his nomination.
8: The Board of Directors decided that we should meet with him in person and look at him in his eyes
0: and ask him questions. On July 19th, 1991, Dukes and four other NAACP officials met Thomas at the home of a Bush administration official.
8: We had the butler uh, with his tuxedo and his white gloves serving us whatever you Hard desire, it was there.
0: After lunch, they grilled Thomas for about two hours. He came prepared to disarm his skeptics. He said that he supported affirmative action, just not racial quotas. He also defended his record at the EEOC, saying that he'd hired a number of minorities and women.
8: And of course, he was prepared to say some things that were right, but his demeanor struck me as not being real.
0: Thomas fell back on his familiar rags to riches origin story of coming from nothing in rural Georgia, but this group wasn't impressed.
8: All of us in the room had stories about not wearing three piece suits or didn't have uh, Buster Brown shoes. They weren't stories, they were actually what life was like.
0: To Dukes, it seemed as if Thomas was struggling to maintain his composure.
8: Some of the questions, he kind of flinched and didn't like it. You could tell from the
0: expression and his body language. The meeting ended with handshakes, but no promises. It was now up to the NAACP to make a call, to endorse or not to endorse.
8: It was a decision not taken lightly.
1: After weeks of debate, the NAACP, America's oldest and largest civil rights organization, has said that while it wants an African American on the Supreme Court, Thomas is not the one.
0: The NAACP said that Thomas's inconsistent views on civil rights policy made him impossible to support. And it wasn't just black leaders who were speaking out. Abortion rights groups pointed to a speech in which Thomas seemed to signal that he wanted to overturn Roe v. Wade.
3: I think it has the potential to bring down this nominee. Given the importance of the right to privacy to Americans, I think this could be the smoking gun.
0: So going into Thomas's confirmation hearings, it was up to the Democrats how they wanted to play it. Would they side with the activists and attack Thomas forcefully, or would they take a softer approach? One big factor in their decision was the optics of the hearing. Every member of the Senate Judiciary Committee was a white man they'd be sitting in judgment of a Black man who came of age in the Jim Crow South.
6: Some of the Democrats on the committee were reluctant to oppose a Black nominee.
0: Jill Abramson again.
6: Because Democrats uh, obviously are dependent on getting, you know, a big Black vote to win their seats.
0: Going after Robert Bork had united the Democrats' base. Going after Clarence Thomas had the potential to divide it. Abramson says that Joe Biden, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, was particularly wary of alienating black voters. Biden's plan was to keep things strictly professional and not go after Thomas personally. If everything went according to that script, the Clarence Thomas hearings would be totally uneventful.
3: The hearing will come to order. Good morning, Judge. Welcome to the blinding lights.
0: On September 10th, 1991, Clarence Thomas stood, faced a sea of cameras, and raised his right
3: hand. Judge Thomas, do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. Please be seated.
0: Thomas was dressed in a charcoal gray suit and red tie. Sitting by his side were Senator John Danforth, his wife Jenny, His son, Jamal, and his mother, Leola Williams. Also there, in a show of support, was his sister, Emma Mae Martin. Thomas' team had prepared him well. He'd undergone grueling mock trials called murder boards and met with more than 60 senators. On that first day, he talked at length about his upbringing in Georgia, the so-called pinpoint strategy. You see, Mr. Chairman, my grandparents grew up and lived
2: their lives in an era of blatant segregation and
0: overt discrimination. When it came to his jurisprudence, Thomas had less to say.
6: He had been encouraged not to go into a lot of detail, and he didn't.
2: Uh, I can't, uh, Senator, remember the total context of that. I would not comment on that specific case. My answer to you is I cannot sit here and decide that.
0: A man known for being argumentative was keeping his opinions to himself. And with only a few exceptions, the senators were satisfied to leave it at that.
6: Those hearings were, you know, not terribly revealing or contentious.
0: Not everyone in Washington was content with subdued questions and vague answers. After seven long days, members of the Congressional Black Caucus took their turns at the mics, Representative John Lewis and his colleagues couldn't cast a vote in this Senate proceeding, but they argued forcefully against confirmation.
2: Plans Thomas is a man who is running from his record. I ask you again, what reason do you have other than the fact that he grew up poor in Pinpoint, Georgia?
1: The elevation of this man to the Supreme Court would be a gross insult, a cruel slap in the face of all African Americans.
2: And if he's confirmed by the Senate, he would be on the court for many, many years to
0: come. It was a powerful, moral stand against Clarence Thomas, but it didn't matter. The full Senate would vote on Thomas's confirmation in a couple of weeks on October 8, 1991. And it was pretty much in the bag. I can remember thinking, well, we've got this. John Danforth felt like he could finally relax. The weekend before the vote, he went for a jog and planned a movie night at home with his wife.
7: Sleeping with the Enemy, a thriller. And it was about 15 minutes, 20 minutes from the very end of the movie when it was really getting exciting.
0: Then the phone rang. On the line was Senator Orrin Hatch.
7: And he said, here's a story that's gonna break on NPR tomorrow. And I said, oh, Orrin, it's too late in the process. I dismissed it and then got off the phone and finished watching the movie. My first reaction on hearing it was, man, this is
0: nothing. It definitely wasn't nothing. Next time on the season finale of Slow Burn. So I went to the phone, it was a friend. He said, hey, i got some information. I said, I really can't talk. He said, no, 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 you want to hear this. Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearing isn't over yet.
5: Just one week ago at about this time, we all figured that Clarence Thomas was a shoe in for confirmation in the Supreme Court. And now we just don't know what the outcome is.
6: I mean, this is bombshell timing.
0: Slow Burn is produced by Sophie Summergrad, Sam Kim, Sophie Codner, and me, Joel Anderson. Josh Levine is the editorial director of Slow Burn. Derek John is our executive producer. This episode was edited by Josh Levine, Derek John, Sophie Summergrad, and Joel Meyer. Susan Matthews is a Slate's executive editor. Merritt Jacob is our senior technical director. Our theme music was composed by Alexis Quadrado. Ivy Lee Simonez did the cover art, we had production help from Patrick Fort, James Reddick, Vic Whitley-Berry, Alyssa Midcalf, and Jesus Vivar at Mixed Theory Studios. We couldn't make Slow Burn without support from our members, and I strongly encourage you to sign up for Slate Plus today. It's only $15 for your first three months. Head over to slate.com slowburn to join. You'll get all kinds of perks, including a member-exclusive episode of Slow Burn this week and every week. In this week's Plus episode, you'll hear more from Thomas' ex-girlfriend, Lillian McEwen, including all kinds of insight into the man only she knew. Slate Plus members also get ad-free listening on this show and all Slate shows, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and more. Again, go to slate.com slowburn to sign up today. If you're looking for breaking news analysis of everything going on with the Supreme Court right now, you should subscribe to Slate's legal podcast, Amicus, hosted by Dahlia Lithwick. Amicus has new episodes every Saturday this month to tell you all about the big decisions being released this SCOTUS term. And there'll be special episodes for Slate Plus members too. Special thanks to Michael Fletcher, Rachel Strom, and Slate's Mark Joseph Stern, Dahlia Lithwick, Christina Cotarucci, Evan Chung, Kelly Jones, Katie Shepard, Caitlin Schneider, Cleo Levin, Bill Carey, Seth Brown, Katie Rayford, Daisy Rosario, Janae Desmond Harris, Hillary Fry, and Alicia Montgomery, Slate's VP of Audio. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.